1: all these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored thank you out there all you star trek book fans for downloading episode 284 of literary treks we are your official star trek books and comics podcast here on the trek fm network i'm one of your hosts dan gunther and joining me to discuss these books and comics that we love so much is my co-host Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing well. I'm very excited
0: to be here to talk about Star Trek books and comics with you.
1: All right. Excellent. You read that perfectly. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And remember, I gave
0: you my account number to deposit the money into.
1: Yes, absolutely. Thank you. We will take care of that after the recording for sure. Well, thank you of course, for joining me as usual. Uh, We kind of looked around for book news this week, and uh, we didn't really find much. Now, those of you out there who are screaming, but we had all those big announcements of the books and or comics, blah, blah, blah. We record these quite a bit in advance. So uh, there may be some big book and comic news out there, but unfortunately, us here in the past have not heard it yet. So uh Yeah, nothing really to discuss news-wise this week. No, but I'm
0: dying to know what that future news is. I wonder what it could be. Right? Oh, man. Uh, may- yeah. Oh, may- I know what it is. They announced that there's going to be a whole new line of Deep Space Nine novels.
1: Yes. That's it. Uh, mostly centering around Garrick. We'll finally find out, of course, what happened to Bashir. Uh, no, unfortunately. <laughs> Unless that actually did happen. Uh, But unfortunately... That's not the case on this side of the uh, the microphone here, unfortunately. So I guess I should mention our feature today. We're going to be continuing the post-Nemesis novels, that shared universe with TNG and Titan and all of that. And the one we're discussing today is the novel Greater Than the Sum. It's a TNG novel by Christopher L. Bennett. And this one's really exciting because it's the one that's leading right into Destiny. So this is kind of the last one before we get to the Destiny Trilogy. But before we get to that feature, we do want to respond to some Babel Conference feedback for a couple of episodes ago, Literary Treks 282, and then Wonder Woman shows up. Uh, This was the episode all about the official guide to the animated series in which Aaron Harvey joined us.
0: I, I just have to say, and the reason that title is then Wonder Woman showed up is because we were talking about the Brady kids. That cartoon <laughs> right. series and Wonder Woman <laughs> appeared in an episode. And uh, funny thing is, I've uh, been watching a very Brady renovation on HGTV. So, and this is the 50th <laughs> anniversary of the Brady Bunch people. So, my hat's off to the Brady Bunch. 50 years. Congratulations. I'm a big fan. Uh, I could talk about Brady's all night, but we're not going to do that. I'd rather talk Star Trek anyway. <laughs>
1: Excellent. I, I mean, man. All these anniversaries, you know, we have the motion picture anniversary, of course, this year as well, uh, which by the time this episode comes out, that no- that new novelization, the the reprint of it will have been out for a while. So I hope you guys have all picked that up. Uh, but yeah, Brady Bunch, that, that comes up. More often on this show than I than I expect. <laughs> well, because you have me on here for sure, it's going to come up every
0: once in a while. I actually a year ago drove by the original Brady Bunch house that was renovated oh, wow. before they renovated. It was on, and that's when I saw the for sale sign, and I was on my phone looking up how to buy it, and of course, <laughs> that never worked out. So it was HGTV hmm. that won it, and I'm glad that they did.
1: <laughs> right on. Well, uh, let's jump into the comments that we had for Literary Tricks 282. Uh, So our first comment, I think, uh, has to do with the title of the episode. This comment comes from Lee W. Benjamin, uh, responding to the And Then Wonder Woman Shows Up title, and he says, Of course she does, because Kirk. Wink. (laughs) Wink. I don't know Wonder Woman and Kirk. Uh, okay,
0: I think he <laughs> sure. would like
1: her invisible plane. Mm-hmm. From the Super I feel Friends. like yeah, that would be cool. I feel like he would not like the lasso of truth. Just to, <laughs> just throwing that out there.
0: <laughs> Ooh, but that would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> what if Wonder Woman used her lasso on Spock? Spock would say, "Well, you don't need to. Vulcans never lie."
1: Oh, but he couldn't say that, though, because we know that that's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Ooh, that's true. The Lassa would reveal the truth. Somebody in one of the uh, books, uh, groups on Facebook, and I'm not sure which novel it was from, but they posted a screenshot or they, they posted a picture from their phone of a novel and the line in it. And I know I've read this somewhere, but I can't remember what novel it's in. Uh, where Spock says, Vulcans never lie. Spock lied. <laughs> right. Exactly. But
0: Christopher Bacca says, I really like the book, although I did find some mistakes with missing parts of sentences. It's really cool seeing all the line art. I always assumed even back then the Mego figures were based on the cartoon as well as the Star Trek party favors, etc., and the bedroom set. I had this one christopher posts his bedroom set of star trek sheets i'm just so impressed that you still have them but what's really odd to me is kirk and spock's tunics are red
1: Hmm. <laughs> yeah i think whoever you know designed this pattern for this fabric just probably had black and white pictures or something i i don't know why but yeah they uh Definitely missed the mark with their uniform colors. You know, but
0: though the Enterprise on there, the colors are right. Everything else is right. And I think Nick Mm -hmm. behind Kirk, I can't
1: tell, but I think that might be McCoy and he's got a yellow tunic on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They seem to, although actually in different sections of the sheet, his shirt's a different color too, or it's just faded or something. I'm not sure.
0: Well, you know, maybe that was a day on the Enterprise. They had like switch your shirt days,
1: like wear a different color shirt day. (laughs) That must be it for sure. Um, Aaron Harvey did respond to some of the errors thing and and we did find some errors in the book as well. Uh, Aaron's hoping for a second printing to rectify some of those issues. Uh, They were kind of rushed with the project and looks like maybe a final pass got missed with some of those um, uh, typographical errors. So hopefully that gets cleared up. Justin Ozer says, loved the interview. There were so many great insights your animated series is one of my favorite things to watch, and I love the layout, artwork, and the amazing information in this guide. Thanks. Definitely agree with you on that, Justin.
0: Absolutely. And Liam Smith says, excuse me, Captain James T. Kirk would not be a T.J. Hooker fan. He loves Boston Legal, though. <laughs> I, You know, I, I can believe that. If, uh, Well, not James T. Kirk, but I'm thinking if William Shatner had to sit down and watch either T.J. Hooker or Boston Legal... I think he probably picked Boston
1: Legal. I feel like that, too. There's a little bit of uh, uh, cathartic feeling when you watch William Shatner's character in that show. <laughs> well, uh, and plus he so. won
0: an Emmy for that character. Actually, I think he won more than one Emmy for that
1: character. That's, that's awesome, yeah. Uh, TJ Hooker, I don't know how many Emmys tj hooker got i I can't actually (laughs) say one way or the other i have a suspicion but i can't say i maybe maybe it swept the awards i have no idea Uh, i don't think so (laughs) well oz trekkie rounds out the comments here with a great episode it's fantastic to hear the passion aaron has for the animated series it would be pretty exciting for aaron to get paid to work on something he is so passionate about I'll have to go back and listen to Saturday Morning Trek and watch season two of the animated series. Yes, awesome. Um, Do check out Aaron's show. And uh, yeah, if there's episodes of the animated series you haven't seen yet, you have not seen all of Trek. If you haven't watched the animated series, that definitely counts. So definitely make sure to Check those out.
0: I keep expecting someone's going to find a long lost episode of the animated series that no one knows about or it never aired, you know, and maybe it did air, but in some country somewhere obscurely and we never saw it (laughs) here. And it's like, you know, I keep waiting for something like that, but I guess that doesn't exist.
1: That would that would be pretty cool. I'm I'm excited we're getting new star trek on television now for the first time in however many years with discovery and all these other series but yeah the idea of like a long lost episode that we've never seen before of something of one of the old treks that would be so cool (laughs) yeah or just make some new ones that would be cool yeah definitely well, thank you guys all so much for your comments. We really appreciate it. Remember to go to the Babel Conference and leave a comment on the post for today's episode if you want to have your comment read on a future episode of Literary Treks. Well, Bruce, what do you say we jump over to the feature and start talking about greater than the sum? What if I said no? Well, I guess we'd have to pack her in and say thank you all so much for listening Live long
0: and whatever I say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now, let's just go to the future. (laughs) (laughs) So, these post nemesis novels with TNG and Titan, we've had a number of adventures, we've had visits from Q, we've had the Borg. And we've had the Borg and a little bit of the Borg. And in this novel, we're going to see the Borg. Are you getting Borged out by these novels yet? Dan, you know me all too well, I have to say. Because
0: as (laughs) I was reading this novel, there was a part of me that was just like, oh, gosh, like, I'm just getting tired of the Borg. Like, I wasn't... Enjoying the novel as much as I should have been because it's just been Borg after Borg after Borg
1: <laughs> i you know it's funny because I remember reading these way back when uh not necessarily right as they were coming out, but shortly thereafter, and I remember just being so tired of the Borg after resistance and then before dishonor, and then reading this novel again, I was like, "Oh, we're doing more with the Borg like this is just getting really." tiresome. That said, I like some of the stuff that is done with the Borg in this novel, which we will get to uh, as we discuss this novel. So like I said before, this is Greater Than the Sum, a Star Trek The Next Generation novel by Christopher L. Bennett. And like I mentioned at the very top of the show, this is the final one before we get to the big Destiny trilogy by David Mack, which of course. Is more Borg, but we'll get there when we get there. So do you think this book was, and not just this book, but the previous books
0: uh, in the Post Nemesis series, were they purposely trying to lead up to the Destiny trilogy moment? Because I feel like you could have done Destiny without doing books about the Borg.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Like, that's a that's a good question. I think this novel in particular is setting up a number of pieces for the Destiny trilogy. The previous books, I don't know that that was that was necessarily the case. It could possibly be, but it might have been. That's just where they saw the story going and decided, like, okay, let's do this big Borg story once and for all kind of thing. Um, but I, I never got those impressions with the other novels that it was necessarily going to be leading to this. Uh, but with this novel, it feels like there's definitely a concerted effort to, uh, set the stage for what's to come.
0: Yeah. And the afterward, uh, it's mentioned that the destiny novels are going are coming up like, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher Bennett mentions working with David Mack to tie things into that.
1: Yeah. So, And and you definitely feel that uh, towards the end of the novel for sure, which we'll get to. As usual, the first part will kind of be relatively spoiler-free. We'll just talk about some of the setup and the beginning parts of the novel. uh, And we'll give you guys a warning when we get to the spoilers a little later on. Uh, So to start with, we start with some action not aboard the Enterprise, but aboard the USS Rhea, which is... A sister ship of the Titan. It's a Luna class starship like that ship and is similarly on a mission far beyond the borders of the Federation in this star cluster NGC 6281. Uh, and they're kind of exploring this region full of carbon planets and investigating that when they're suddenly attacked by the USS Einstein. Now, for those of you who don't remember, the Einstein was the science vessel that uh was assimilated in before Dishonor by the Borg, and you know that was the mission where Captain J- or Admiral Janeway was captured by the Borg and all that stuff. So that ship is still at large and it attacks and What's interesting in this novel is as it goes on, the Einstein is referred to as the Frankenstein by a lot of the characters, because by this point, it's very, it's not recognizable as its former self. It's been assimilated by the Borg. It's had other ships that the Borg have captured kind of uh pieced onto it and it's become more cube like it's it. It's not quite a Borg cube, but it's definitely not the same as the science ship it was. Because they said that they also didn't want to
0: call it the Einstein because it's in honor of a famous scientist, and they didn't want this ship that's a Borg ship referred to as Einstein anymore.
1: Right. So, yeah, they wanted to kind of take that away from it and and name it for what it is, this kind of crazy Frankenstein. It's kind of a fitting name for sure. <laughs> Well, in this mission on this planet, we meet one of the crew members of the Rhea, and that's uh, Ensign Teresa, or sorry, Lieutenant Teresa Chen. And uh, if you've read later novels, you might be familiar with that character. But this is our first introduction to her. She's half human and half Vulcan, but she hasn't really followed the same path that Spock has. She's more kind of embraced her human side and seems to almost re- um, resent her Vulcan side, I'd say. She she kind of embraces her human side and resents what you know her Vulcan father provided her. What did you think of your initial meeting of Chen? What were your first thoughts with her?
0: I mean, she seems a little over the top, but they also say that she's young and she's just a few years out of the academy. But they also Criticize the fact that you know she has been out of the academy for a few years so she should have grown up by this point but the way uh, she she kind of reminds me of Tilly in a certain way Mm. the type of character where you know kind of says things at inappropriate times maybe and is a little uncomfortable and has a hard time with authority and and just kind of speaks her mind at times. But I enjoy her character because in some ways she kind of reminds me of me. (laughs) And I I haven't grown up either in some ways. But, um, you know, but it's different for a Vulcan. She grew up on Earth, so her situation is different than Spock's. If she had grown up on Vulcan, it would have been probably a lot different. But she was grown up to be an Earthling. (laughs) They -hmm. never call themselves Earthling. But, you know, other science fiction calls people from Earth
1: (laughs) Earthlings. Yeah. Yeah, I um I I've, I've always kind of liked Chen. Uh I know there are a lot of readers that uh she that find her annoying and don't really like her, but there are also a lot of, lot of readers out there that do like her quite a bit. Um I've always found myself in that category. I like the character, but with her introduction here and and some of what we see in this novel, I was starting to think kind of see where some of those people are coming from she is a little bit much to take sometimes but i feel like uh you know as we get to know her you kind of understand what motivates her and what makes her tick a little bit more and uh that that was kind of my journey i kind of came around to like oh okay i i, I see where she's coming from i kind of like her and, of course, later on, her rough edges kind of get smoothed out a little bit, and that sort of thing,
0: but doesn't she well she's not quite your typical Star Trek character mm-hmm. or Starfleet
1: character for that
0: matter of fact, but you know she kind of reminds me of something that Peter David would have created, but he didn't
1: yeah and and that's one of the thing that one of the things that struck me reading this novel was that those ideas are kind of embodied in that one character and it kind of makes sense for her. But when I was reading before dishonor, it's like Peter David wrote all the characters to be really funny and crazy and over the top. Whereas like this one, I felt the characterizations of the main crew were like good, but that kind of energy was put into this one character and that was kept consistent. That's just kind of a thought that I had while I was reading this.
0: Yeah, I remember thinking how the characters were more grounded, the regular characters, and a little more serious, which is really odd when you come out of Before Dishonor, which gets to the point that you made when reading Before Dishonor, where you said it just didn't. Fit In with the others if it was a standalone Mm -hmm. you wouldn't have as much of an issue with it because but because it doesn't fit in in tone with the others that really stick stuck out as a sore thumb for you and it Mm -hmm. really felt that way to me because after going from that novel to this it just seemed that this was the more serious version of Star Trek as opposed to the little more silly
1: side of Star Trek kind of a uh, comic booky, weird crazy universe that peter david seems to dip his toe into a bit more right. yeah yeah <laughs> Where well, this feels more like the tone of the series right yeah definitely well in the course of this borg attack uh teresa chen is part of the away team that's on this planet and they come under attack by the borg at the same time that the borg are attacking the rea in orbit um And this attack is kind of incapacitating her fellow crew members, and she's kind of running away. Um, But she finds herself all of a sudden, like as she's getting assimilated, she all of a sudden is whisked away. uh, She later finds out via slipstream to a faraway planet called Marivel, which is a planet that she visited long ago and, and feels safe at. And so some force, some entity of of this region uh, transported her there somehow. So this is kind of interesting, and this kind of kicks off the mystery of what's going on in this novel and, and what force did that and how that's going to play into what's going on with the Borg. So the Enterprise is given the assignment to... Uh, kind of head out there and find out the condition of the Rhea and find out what's happened and where the Borg are, if they were sent away as well. And Teresa Chen ends up joining the Enterprise crew for this mission uh, for a number of reasons, mostly because of her familiarity with the situation, but also because Picard feels that her skills might be needed Uh, In the position of contact specialist, which is a position we haven't seen before on the Enterprise.
0: I was a little surprised that he chose her because he was interviewing several people for that position. But the fact that she had dealt with uh, this situation and that she had a certain passion for it, I think he really honed in on that and thought that would be something that would be beneficial. And I think he liked her little spunk, you know, and he even (laughs) mentioned that, you know, later in the book that he may feel that she would loosen him up, you know, have a little more fun. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, it is kind of surprising that he did choose her because she's so the opposite of him.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things I like is the juxtaposition of Picard and Chen and the different uh, things that each of them brings out in the other. And that's something that uh as far as I remember, it's been a long time since I've read the books that follow, but like the idea of that kind of uh, relationship and how it carries on from here is really interesting to read about. So, like I said, the Enterprise is sent uh, after the Rea. Now, Starfleet has also developed a new weapon to use against the Borg that they've equipped the Enterprise with, this multi-vector agent. Which is kind of, uh, it's called multi vector because it attacks the Borg on a number of fronts. It's got, you know, it's got aspects of that kind of end game thing that was going to disrupt the Borg in before Dishonor. It's also got like a virus that, that will carry it through the Borg and. Uh, just a bunch of different things that they're attacking them on different fronts, biologically, technologically, and that sort of thing. And their Enterprise is also equipped with transphasic torpedoes. Now, these are the big bad torpedoes that Admiral Janeway from the future equipped Voyager with in the Voyager series finale Endgame, those ones that you know could take out Borg ships really easily. And Starfleet has restricted their use because they don't want the Borg to adapt to them, but they're kind of given to the Enterprise as like a last-ditch uh, weapon against the Borg.
0: And why is it a last-ditch effort against the Borg? Like that, I kind of got it, but I also didn't buy it at the same time. Because if you have these weapons that can destroy a Borg, why not just use them? Why? It's, why is it a last-ditch effort?
1: Well, there's definitely the worry that the Borg will adapt to them once they're used. But
0: it sounds like um, they would be
1: destroyed if they're used. They would, but they also want to use this mission as kind of a test bed for this new multi-vector weapon that they've uh, designed, because I don't think that they could use the torpedoes indefinitely to destroy all of the Borg. But if this multi-vector agent works, it could potentially take out the entire collective if the test goes as planned.
0: So let me go back to something you and I discussed last week on the other side of the page, uh, because you had just started reading this book. And the beauty that I find in Christopher L. Bennett is how he ties things together. And you were mentioning about how he approaches the different type of Borg that we see.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's definitely one thing that Christopher Bennett is really good at is, uh, I, I call it kind of smoothing over the rough edges of canon, because... You know, Star Trek fans, we're all guilty of this sometimes. We see something on on screen and we're like, well, that's not canon. They said in episode whatever, that's, that's not right. And like, for example, right now I'm doing a rewatch of Star Trek Voyager. And there's a bunch of stuff about the Borg that I didn't really notice before, but they're really bugging me this time around. Uh, so one example in this novel that Christopher Bennett directly addresses, and he addresses a bunch of stuff. (laughs) Yes, he does, a lot. Yeah. So in the next generation, the Borg ships, they were described as being decentralized. There was no specific um, systems to target. It was all just kind of uh, distributed throughout the entire Borg ship. You couldn't target the navigation system or the shield system because they're all spread throughout the whole ship. But in Voyager, like in five recent episodes where they've come up against the Borg recently, they've been like, Tuvok, target their shield generators, target their navigational array, (laughs) and they're totally taking those things out on a cube. And I'm going, no, that's not what they... But Christopher L. Bennett takes that and gives an explanation for it, saying like, oh, in recent years, the Borg have begun to decentralize their systems because of reasons X, Y, and Z. And then the specific thing you're talking about which is the different types of borg. So, for example, Hugh, who was rescued f- from the borg in the TNG episode I Borg, is one of these borg that was sp- uh, that was supposedly incubated and grown and, and and made a borg that way. He was not assimilated. Right. He didn't have a previous life. Yep. Whereas other borg are assimilated. And Christopher Bennett Has this, you know, explanation? As there's so many in this novel, that uh, when the Borg are far flung from the the collective, they're out of reach of. uh, They're not near the collective, and there's a chance they could get cut off. They tend to use Borg that were grown because they won't rebel if they get cut off from the collective, but closer to the collective where voyager is they tend to use assimilated species because they're more readily available and there's less chance of them getting cut off and rebelling and that kind of thing so i'm like just the thought that he's put into all these little things that most people would tend to say oh that's just something they changed you know just ah just ignore that he kind of goes no 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 I'm going to think this through and I'm going to think of an explanation for it. And there's so much of that in this novel. Well, And it's so
0: fun, too, because of those different things that we notice that don't quite add up sometimes because of, well, they decide to change this for some reason or change that. And then to say, oh, no, it all makes sense. It all works out. Connecting all those pieces together. I mean, that's what I kind of do. In my head, when I see things that don't add up, I'm like, well, off screen, we don't know the reasons, but maybe it's because dah, 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 dah. and that's what he does here. And, yeah, you could look at this and say, oh, well, you know, he's just retconning things and he's just, you know, making up stuff, you know, because the writers are lazy and de- didn't keep it consistent on the shows or whatever. OK, fine. Maybe they were lazy. I don't think they're lazy, but whatever. Maybe you say they're lazy. Maybe it's just because, you know, well, it's different writers. They'd have a different take. But why not try to make it all tie in together in some way? Because that's the fun of having tie in novels, of tying in things together. And the thing about that is, I love that it makes things complicated in a sense, mm-hmm. because not all Borg are the same. Not all humans are the same. It's like it would make sense that things are going to be different and not a, something like the Borg, which has you know, hundreds, if not thousands of cubes or whatever across the galaxy, it's like, you're going to have different things. You know, they're not all going to be exactly alike. And that really works for me. That's what makes it fun.
1: Yeah. And I'm really enjoying it too. Like I I can see some people thinking it might get a little tiresome because you know, what happens is there's like a staff meeting and they're talking about strategies to fight the Borg and somebody will say, well, why is, you know, this blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, somebody, oh, well, we've discovered that blah, blah. And there'll be this lengthy explanation, but I'm loving it. Like, I, I love that kind of, uh, just, you know, using like drywall mud to fill in the cracks of Star Trek continuity. You know, I, I, I think that's brilliant.
0: Yeah, I do. I I agree with you there. I love it, too. There are times, though, I can say that in this book, and some of his other books are the same way, where something comes up that relates to a previous episode or even a previous novel, but especially with a previous episode where then he takes a couple paragraphs to give you the backstory on that episode. Now, yes, I know not everybody's maybe seen the episode. Maybe not everybody remembers the episode. So I don't blame him on that, but because there's so many references to past things, you get a lot of recaps of past episodes. And to me, it gets to be a little much, but, um, but I do appreciate it. And I I enjoy the fact that he is bringing all these different elements in and putting them into one.
1: Yeah. It's one of those things that, You know, he, he tries to strike a balance and I think sometimes he might fall on one side or the other a little bit of a little bit too much, but for the most part, I'm definitely enjoying it.
0: Yeah. Same here.
1: Well, I think now is the time we're going to get into a bit of spoiler territory. Uh, We've kind of set up what's going on in this novel, but to go any further, I think we're going to have to talk about some of the specifics of the plot. So, if you haven't read this novel, you might want to go do that now. So, this star cluster that the Enterprise is traveling to, where the Rhea was, NGC six two eight uh, one, they kind of discover a unique quality of the star cluster, and it's made up of, of a bunch of different carbon planets. Uh, but the the underneath the surface, the mantle of the planet is made of diamond. And they kind of act as semiconductors that behave a little bit like a giant computer across the entire star cluster. All these different, um, planets act as different aspects of this computer, and it seems to have gained intelligence. Now, early in the novel, Teresa Chen interacted with some of the, uh, I want to say like apparitions that the, the, giant uh, brain kind of manifested to communicate with people and its intelligence is spread over this entire cluster. And that's just kind of uh, how it um, manifests itself. Now, this is a little bit worrisome to Captain Picard because this is a giant interlinked creature that has different aspects, but is one big whole. And he's kind of worried that it might sympathize more with the Borg than with the individuals that make up the crew of the Enterprise and the Rhea. So, yeah, this this huge Cosmozoan entity, it's the largest entity ever discovered on record. What did you kind of think of that revelation there? It was a little
0: strange, a little odd, <laughs> um, <laughs> but at the same time, very Star Trek. And that's the thing I like is when we get into novels like this, something that we may not have seen on screen before, um a very unique thing like this uh where we've got these planets that are connected to each other with these diamond mantles that that are semi semicondu- semiconductors and i i was just kind of like wait what are we doing here this is a big computer area but i i thought it was very interesting um you know it wasn't my favorite thing in the world but it was very unique and that's that's mm-hmm. what i enjoy
1: yeah it's uh you know, the strange new worlds end up actually being the life form. They don't just contain life forms. <laughs> it was kind of a, a neat concept. I, I I liked it. I thought that was kind of a, I, and, and I liked the way that the author used its nature to kind of put some question in the air as to whether it would like think like, Oh, the Borg, they've got the right idea. That's, that's how life is. What are these weird little individual creatures running around? That doesn't seem right. You know, I I like that, that there was that kind of question in the air as well.
0: And I liked how this entity separated the Borg from the Rea. And then also by uh, removing Chen from it. And the analogy was mentioned. It's like watching two cats uh, playing with each other. And all of a sudden they get into a fight And you just want to separate them because you care for them and and you don't want them to hurt each other. So you pull one cat away from the other cat and put them on different sides of the yard or whatever. And it's like, that's what this entity is doing. It sees these uh, us, meaning the Rhea and then the Borg is almost like, not like playthings or pets, but similar to that. Just kind of standing And trying to learning and enjoying what
1: these entities might be. And they don't want them to hurt each other, so they separate them. Mm -hmm. I like that image of, you know, this thing kind of like looking like, what's going on over here? Hey, guys, don't fight. And just kind of pushing them apart. (laughs) I (laughs) think that's really cool. You go over here and you go over here. Now, stay away from each other. Don't fight. (laughs) <laughs> and that's one thing that we learn about the nature of this entity is that it has a very developed sense of empathy for living creatures. It doesn't want to see them hurt and that goes for, you know, both the Starfleet crew members and the Borg. So it 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 comes from this position of, you know, anytime there's kind of a fight and that kind of thing from we learn later it's past experience. That it doesn't like that. It wants, you know, it does not want creatures to be hurting each other.
0: And I know I'm jumping ahead in the book, but then these, you know, creatures start to appear on the ship and are observing what the crew is doing. But they seem to be very interested in when it comes to procreation. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So it looks at children as being an extension of someone. But not just an Mm -hmm. extension of creating a new individual, but just an actual extension of someone. So, for example, if I have a child, that child is a part of me and thinks like me. It's just an extension of me. It's almost like sharing the same mind. That's how they view offspring. And the crew is trying to then explain to the entities that's not exactly how it is with us. That offspring becomes an individual with its own mind, its own Independence. It's not reliant on the parent.
1: It's not an extension of them by mind. I I thought that was a really interesting aspect of this creature in that it didn't understand that at first. And that plays a lot into some of the themes of what's going on with some of our characters as well. Uh, Because, for example, Picard and Beverly Crusher, one thing we didn't mention is they've recently gotten married and this was not in a novel or it will be later there's a there's an ebook that kind of fills in the gap of that that's written later on but in this novel we learn it was shortly before this novel basically that they got married and beverly crusher of course um doesn't necessarily want uh this marriage to be childless right she's interested in uh continuing the family line of, of her and Picard. And Picard seems reticent. He seems to kind of not be... And, and he says, you know, I have to concentrate on this Borg threat right now. We've got all this stuff going on afterwards, then we'll talk about it. But it kind of comes into play with some of his command decisions and stuff later too. And this whole thing with the entity is kind of something that As he puts it later in the the novel, the universe keeps trying to tell him something.
0: (laughs) I find it very interesting that this novel starts off with them already married, that there wasn't Mm -hmm. a novel that approached that topic of the marriage that didn't actually see that take place. And like you said, we get an ebook about that later, but it just seems really like an odd choice to say, okay, they're just married now, you know, but- Mm -hmm. I I mean, that's fine because maybe the wedding wasn't all that exciting anyway. It wouldn't be maybe exciting storytelling unless you involve Q. Oh, gee, maybe we did that in an e-book later. But, you (laughs) know, the funny thing about this is I was a little annoyed at Beverly Crusher because in some ways I agreed with Picard, in a lot of ways I agree with Picard, when you're dealing with this threat of the Borg and you're on this mission why is that's not really the time to start deciding if you want to have a family or not. And she kept acting like that was an excuse, which when actually, yeah, Picard was using that as an excuse, not to broach the topic, but at the same time, he really like that. (laughs) This is a serious thing going on. It's like, I mean, Oh, let's sit down and talk about having a family. You would think you would want to wait till after the mission, but she just kept pressing him like, you know, Oh, don't use this as an excuse. And it's like, well, Come on Beverly. There's something really serious going on here. <laughs> like can you just wait like another week to have the topic? Does it have to be now? But then again, mm. as the book goes on, it starts to show that well, maybe she's right in a way, maybe there is no perfect time and and it does take a lot of time to get to where they're going so they can use that time to discuss it and she knows deep in her heart that he really probably wants children and he's just avoiding it. And she's just trying to break that
1: egg. Yeah. I was no going pun to intended. bring intended. <laughs> I was going to bring that up. Um, the fact that, uh, you know, it, the book does an okay job of kind of getting this across, but the, it does take quite a long time for the enterprise to get to this star cluster and they talk a little bit about it. And actually, it's interesting if you read the acknowledgements. Christopher Bennett did a lot of really interesting research into the actual astronomy of kind of what's between us and this star cluster, which is a real star cluster that he's set this uh, novel in. I don't think that it actually has diamond cord planets that are intelligent. I we really don't know, but <laughs> probably not. But uh, the star cluster itself is actually real. And he's kind of mapped out how long it takes the Enterprise to get there. So I kind of get what you're saying that, you know, Crusher was maybe not um, picking the best moment (laughs) to talk about this stuff, but there was a lot of kind of time there as well that Picard's, Picard's definitely being a little bit of a, uh, sticking them out about this stuff too
0: yeah but again that's the beauty of his writing and th- it's so true that there's a lot of you know downtime on these starships you know because it's like you know when we see something it's like well we've got to get to wherever go warp eight and then boom next scene we're there <laughs> Well, commercial yeah.
1: break and we're there yeah. yeah and it's like you know
0: but think about you know well how long did it take to get there maybe it took a day maybe it was you know 12 hours maybe it was three days who knows how long it took but yeah what are they doing all that time there isn't a whole lot to do i always think it's funny when i'm watching uh any of these series and the captain sitting in the chair on the bridge and i'm like but was the captain been doing just like sitting there for two hours looking out you know, the the screen or the window of where they're going and just like uh oh, Mr. Data, how's it looking? We're still proceeding
1: as ordered, Captain. Great. Well I'll be sitting right here. <laughs> <laughs> Doing Mr. Nothing. Data, estimated time of arrival. Six days, twelve hours, fourteen minutes and fifty-two seconds, sir. Fifty-six min- fifty-six minutes after the last time you asked <laughs> Great. and he's
0: and he's sitting in the captain's chair, and then there's Riker and Troy next to him. What are they doing? Playing cards for a couple hours? Like, it's got to be boring as heck, you know?
1: <laughs> I always figure that Riker, when he has that little monitor turned towards him, is just playing solitaire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he's playing Words for Friends, and Troy's on the other one putting her word in,
1: and Picard's like, Well, they seem very busy. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason they always have it angled just away from Picard. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But yeah, there is a lot of downtime and, uh, in, and that, that kind of comes across in this novel a little bit for sure.
0: Which allows a lot of character development. I will give mm-hmm. credit there. There is a lot of character development going on in this novel. And uh, one character just want to mention real quick, and that'd be Jasminder Chowdhury. And she's a new character in here that we see quite often in future books also
1: hmm. Yeah, I liked her introduction. The The Enterprise has gone through some security officers lately, and she is the latest to come on board. Now, this is just a little bit of an aside here. Um, I, okay, let's first talk about this character, because as a security officer, her approach is unorthodox, which I appreciate. I think she's a really interesting character. She's kind of using the philosophy of pacifism, not, not quite pacifism, but, you know, only fighting when absolutely necessary and, you know, turning your opponent's strength against them rather than attacking and that sort of thing. And I find that philosophy that she has really interesting. And it's something that Worf finds really interesting as well, which is kind of cool. Um, the one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about though is Jordy. Now, this happens twice in the novel when Jordy starts to try to talk to Jasminder and then later Teresa. They just assume that he's hitting on them. Yeah, I know. What is going on with Jordy? Well, it's here? because he's
0: being nice.
1: Yeah, like he's just being
0: nice. Now, okay, so I'm get to you a really quick story. When I was in college, I was in a broadcasting class, and there was, you know, some girls that sat near me or around me or whatever. And I didn't know them that well, and I would talk to them. And then, like, you know, weeks go by or whatever, and they invited me to lunch after class, and I went with them. And they start telling me how I'm a flirt. And I was like, "What?" And they're like, "Yeah, you're always flirting with us when you come into the classroom." I'm like, "I'm not flirting. I'm just being nice." And they're like, then, you know, when a guy's being nice to a girl, it's flirting.
1: <laughs> and that's what I think of with Jordy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of like, you know, when I was thinking about it afterwards, I was like, okay, it's, it seems that Christopher Bennett's kind of turning on its head. The idea that like, uh, you know, the woman cashier was nice to me. Oh, therefore, like, I can totally hit on her because, you know, she's being nice to me. She's probably interested So it's kind of almost turning that around a little bit, um, you know, towards the male side. But but, this is great for Jordy because he's always
0: trying to meet (laughs) girls, you know, trying to find a woman to be his girlfriend. And he doesn't have any luck. But now we find out he's really good at flirting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but the thing is, too, that, like, they don't even give him a chance. Like, A, first of all, he's not flirting. And B, they're like, oh, by the way, if you're trying to flirt with me, um, I'm not interested in that right now. And he's like... No, I'm just trying to talk to you.
0: Which is an odd thing for them to say, too. You would think they would mm-hmm. just ignore it and just try to move on from him. Or, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Poor Jordy. Oh, Poor Jordy. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, him and Harry Kim. and you know, just, <laughs> They should just have a, you know,
1: a poor man's club together. Yeah. Uh. Well, another, this is going to be the weirdest transition, the weirdest segue ever, but another character who's having trouble with women, but in a different way. Yeah, I (laughs) want to figure out where you're going with this. Is a character that we've talked about already briefly, but we haven't mentioned that he's actually in this novel. So along the way, the Enterprise meets up with a Borg ship that looks a little familiar and aboard that ship is Hugh who is from the episodes I, Borg, and Descent Part 2 in The Next Generation. He's the one that is kind of leading that splinter group of Borg that Lore was in charge of in the Descent two-parter. And since they're cut off from the collective, Hugh has become their leader. And uh, we'll get to his trouble with the ladies that he has in a little bit. But what was your first reaction at seeing Hugh in this novel and kind of the role that he's playing? I liked his role in this
0: because it really ties together the whole Unimatrix Zero and being cut off from Borg and being with this liberated crew of ex-Borg. Of and it seems like the appropriate time to bring Hugh back because he can help the Enterprise as we're leading up to the events of the Borg. And again, it helps to progress the Borg story, you know, like we were saying earlier, oh, another Borg story. But to add Hugh that adds a human type component to a Borg story because he is Borg.
1: Have I said mm-hmm. Borg more than once? <laughs> I think you might have mentioned it a few times. <laughs> but yeah, so Hugh is uh leading the group of Borg and they're called the Liberated because they've been liberated from the collective and the starship that he's on is called the liberator uh and they arrive and they kind of uh assist the enterprise as they're going to kind of hunt down the frankenstein Now, the trouble that Hugh's having with the uh, ladies, (laughs) like I mentioned, and I promise I'll stop putting it that way because that's not exactly right. Who would ever Um, thought that Hugh has trouble with the ladies? Oh, he's a charmer. Yeah, no. And in fact, he's actually in a relationship with a woman by the name of a former Borg drone by the name of Rebecca Grabowski, who was of the enterprise D and she was a crew member on that ship when it encountered the Borg in the second season episode Q who, and she was in that section of the enterprise that got carved out and pulled in by the Borg ship. And she managed to escape the collective because she was one of the uh, Borg drones who was a part of Unimatrix zero. And if you remember the two parter from Voyager, the Voyager crew was instrumental in kind of, separating them from the collective and allowing them to retain their individuality. Actually just watch those episodes, thankfully, because that just happens to be where I'm at in my rewatch. So it's all very fresh in my mind. I was thinking of (laughs)
0: rewatching them recently. I haven't done it yet.
1: They're better than I remember. I remember not really enjoying Voyager at that point, but I'm really enjoying it on this rewatch. So, um, yeah, check them out. They're very good. (laughs) but yeah they want to be able to procreate because they've kind of um established their own culture their own um traditions and that sort of thing but a culture that can't procreate is going to die out so they want to be able to carry on into future generations but because of the damage that you know assimilation and borgification has done to their bodies they're unable to naturally procreate so They assist the Enterprise, but in exchange, they want Dr. Crusher to help them regain the ability to procreate. And this is kind of what I mentioned earlier, where Picard's personal issues with procreation and stuff right now are kind of influencing his command decisions. Because at first, he's like, we don't have time to focus on this. We need to focus on the Borg threat right now. There'll be plenty of time for that later. Uh, Dr. Crusher, no, you don't, don't focus on that we've got to do this. And you Borg led by Hugh, you're going to help us. uh, And we can't make any promises on that front right now. And they're kind of like, well, okay, we got to help you, but this is really important to us. And eventually Picard comes around on this issue, but it's clear that like his own kind of hangups are kind of influencing his decision on that.
0: Yeah. Didn't he at one point even accuse Beverly of trying to get all these topics as an issue about procreation just to get him to think about doing it.
1: (laughs) Yes, Jean-Luc, I called up the liberated and made them come here and told them to tell you. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little strange. Um, But you know,
0: it just shows how much they've advanced and become more individuals and more human in a sense. But I also love the story about Hugh and Rebecca's relationship because it didn't seem as if they were in love with each other. It seemed to me that they were just very close and because Ooh. they only had each other uh, and because these were the closer relationships that they have, that they should utilize this as an opportunity to procreate, to help keep their new liberated species, for lack of a better word to keep going. But then Rebecca finds out that her daughter on earth wants her to come back home. Her daughter somehow found out that her mother was still alive. And now Rebecca is trying to figure out, does she go back home and reunite with her daughter? Does she stay behind with Hugh and the liberated? And, um, she makes the decision that she wants to, in the sense go back to her whole old, her old life knowing that it can't go back to the way it used to be but at least to reunite with her daughter.
1: Yeah, I found this story really interesting because you know, part of an- another reason I think these two wanted to procreate together. I almost felt like they were kind of symbolic of the two different types of Borg and that their kind of coming together would be a way to unite them Better so, kind of almost as figureheads. Like, oh, it's one of the Unimatrix Zero drones, and one of the Liberated kind of coming yeah, together. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, and the fact that Hugh never had a family, he never had any of these old ties, and Rebecca feels this very strong attachment to this daughter from her old life. It really puts them at odds because they they can't see things from each other's perspective in a really deep way because they don't have a common frame of reference. I, f- I thought that was really interesting and kind of really tragic almost because Hugh just doesn't get, doesn't understand this idea of an old life, you know, because being a Borg is all that he's ever known. He was raised as a Borg. And the
0: storyline plays into how the novel ends, which we'll get to later. But as you're talking, I'm thinking how, since no one has procreated uh, in part of the liberated that they're kind of the Adam and Eve of mm-hmm. the liberated in this sense. But again, I just never felt like they really loved each other. I feel like it's like you're saying it was more like a mission. It's something that they need to do for their people.
1: Yeah. I feel like there were, there was a definitely a closeness there and like a shared struggle and that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, it's, I feel like it was a strong foundation to build a family on. Maybe not the one that we would think of as what's necessary, necessarily, (laughs) but uh, I I feel like they had a strong closeness there that would have, would have
0: helped a lot. Yes. No, I agree with that. A strong closeness, but I didn't feel like it was romantic love necessarily.
1: Well, we've got basically all the pieces kind of in place here. And like I said, Picard comes around on on Beverly researching into their reproductive requirements and that sort of thing. But we've got the Enterprise and the Liberator racing towards this star cluster. And we've also caught the Borg heading back there as well from wherever it was that this entity sent them. And like we said, they have this multi-vector agent that they need to try to use on the Borg to ensure that it'll be an effective weapon against them. But in order to do this, they discover that the only way they can really deliver it is directly to the Borg via assimilation. They figure if they inject a Borg with it, it'll the collective will just cut that Borg out and, and make sure it doesn't spread. But if an infected person is willing to sacrifice themselves and become assimilated that it will be able to spread through the collective because of this masking agent that they'll have with it as well. So Picard, of course, initially volunteers and says, it has to be me. And the whole reason for this is because the Borg lost Locutus and they're going to want him back. Everyone else, they're just going to kill. Didn't we do this in Resistance? I had the same thought. <laughs> I'm really glad that Picard wasn't like, well, Beverly, you're going to have to make me cosplay as Locutus. But no, they don't do that, <laughs> thankfully. But yeah, it had that very same feeling to it, for sure.
0: And I just kind of thought, oh gosh, here he goes again. Oh, oh, go! it will be me. And it's like, I that one I, I struggle a little bit with, because it, I agree with what you're saying, and, and the book acknowledges this, that they would be more attracted to assimilate him into their collective because he was Lacutus. But at the same time, I'm just like, yeah, but he was Locutus. And that's even more dangerous if he got in the collective. So was it Mm -hmm. really the right person to send on that mission? But then at the same time, if he was like, oh, okay, well, I'll send Mr. Wolf. Mr. Wolf, why don't you go? And they might not assimilate them. They might just kill him mm. because they were doing so. So I can see that situation, but gosh, you know, mm, I, the holy cutest thing. It's such a dangerous road to go by if he gets
1: in the collective again. Definitely. Well, there is one other person that they figure will work. Jordan because, know- <laughs> because,
0: because wait, listen, this is, uh, and I'm not being serious. <laughs> so Jordy Picard's going to send Jordy over because he notices that all the women seem to think he's flirting with them. And so if he goes to the Borg cube, if Jordy goes, then the Borg will think he's flirting with them. And one of them is going to be attracted <laughs> to him and
1: assimilate him. <laughs> Poor Jordy beams onto the Borg ship, onto the Frankenstein, and walks up. It's like, Hey, Borg, I just wanted to talk to you. And the Borg's like, Whoa, whoa, okay, hold on commander just so you know uh i know you're flirting with me i'm I'm not really interested
0: <laughs> and then oh man the mission doesn't work oh no picard picked the wrong person then <laughs> until the borg queen shows up and says oh jordy come here
1: <laughs> wipe some jelly all over me Ugh. <laughs> just knew the royal jelly would have to come back. And and actually, Christopher Bennett even mentioned the royal jelly at one point. Yes. So I was like, he's really making all of the versions of the Borg we've seen work together. That's, that's pretty cool. But no, they do realize there is one other person who was formerly a Borg that the Borg would want back. Which it, I, I guess they don't say he's the only person, but he does volunteer because it occurs to me, I'm like, the whole ship. Is all former Borg that the Borg would want back, right? But yeah. no, it's Hugh, the leader of them, who of course is brave and, and volunteers. And basically, it's decided that Hugh will be the one to deliver this multi-vector agent. And so Hugh sacrifices himself to the Borg on the Frankenstein, and they 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 don't just beam him over. It's kind of this elaborate. Set up, they make the Borg think that they're getting beaten, and all this kind of stuff, and you know they maneuver things to put Hugh in the position to be assimilated and uh it interestingly enough, it takes a while for this multi vector agent to work its way into the Borg, but it does eventually work.
0: And initially, Picard didn't want to send Hugh because, of course, Picard was going. But at the same time, he thought that Hugh's people need him because he is the leader. And if they're trying to progress themselves forward, Hugh is that leader to help that happen. But at the same time, Rebecca is looking to leave. And it's Hugh's way of saying to Rebecca, go ahead and go home. Go to Earth you know, you have what you need to do. This is something I need to do. And then there's a scene where he's talking to Jordy, and Jordy's like, You know, Hugh, by going and giving yourself over to the Borg, that counters everything we tried to do when we first met you. We were trying to protect you from getting back into the Borg, and we were successful at that. And now, you know, we we're just turning around and going back. And he, he's like, Yeah, but you gave me all these years to have this opportunity. And so what you did all those years ago was successful. I lived a life. It was a full life. And now I'm ready to do something uh, like this and give back to you. So I liked that scene. I liked how that worked mm-hmm. out. And then Hugh says, and I can tell you're flirting with me, Jordy, but I'm not interested.
1: <laughs> and I love that. Like he makes the point that he's making that choice as an individual too, that like, if he was a Borg, and I was reading a little bit into it, but like, if he was a Borg, he would have no choice, but to, you know, fulfill the directives of the collective, but he has a choice here and he's making the choice to save his people. Like, that's just, that's so poetic and I really love it.
0: Yeah, I did too. That was a nice scene.
1: So, yeah, things are right down to the wire, and Picard's right about to order the use of the transphasic torpedoes because it's you know nothing's happening, but sure enough, this multi vector agent seems to work, and the Borgs start to shut down, and they're able to destroy the the franklin's destroyed and and all this stuff, so they've overcome the Borg and at the same time, this cluster entity. has learned something about procreation and has decided to create a new cluster entity in a nearby set of carbon planets or something, which was interesting. I was like, I wasn't quite sure how it was doing that, but I thought that was kind of interesting that it learned that lesson as well.
0: I was a little surprised that Christopher Bennett behaved in this novel because sometimes his novels get a little sexual here and there. And when we're talking procreation, I kept waiting for something. Yeah. To happen, but nothing like that really happened, right?
1: Okay, so there were a couple moments where I was <laughs> like, okay, yeah, there he goes. So at the beginning, of course, Teresa Chen travels via slipstream to this faraway planet, and she shows up there naked. And uh oh. <laughs> The way she, there's a Starfleet team nearby or something, and she bursts out of the bushes because she's thought of like the perfect way to present herself. She bursts (laughs) out of the bushes and runs like, have you seen my boyfriend? Goes by the name of Adam around here (laughs) anyway. So there's a little bit of that. And then the other one I noticed was when Teresa was on the holodeck showing the uh, cluster entity the ideas of procreation and stuff and one of the things she was showing them was apparently four andorians in the middle of whatever it is that they do the four of them together and somebody came in and caught her like watching it and she's like ah but well, i wasn't oh uh. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah there's yeah mm-hmm.
0: but a little bit of it there's bit. still
1: just a little yeah yeah i mean yeah <laughs> I enjoyed that. that was I did too. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> oh. So after all is said and done, we get an epilogue. This was really interesting. We get uh, the reappearance of LeBenzin, who was the security officer in uh, a <laughs> previous couple of novels. And played a big part in the mutiny in Before Dishonor, and he's now a security officer on this other ship when the Borg attack. Oh my goodness, more Borg. What's going on? Well, they now have this new weapon that the Enterprise has proven works, and they decide, like, Oh, yeah, okay. It has to be delivered to them via someone being assimilated, so Lebenzon's like, "Oh, i'm going to do this i'm going I'm going to be assimilated and if if that doesn't work, if they fight, I'll overcome them, and I'll inject them, and all this sort of stuff And we go on the board ship, and his entire security team is wiped out, and the Borg pick up the hypo spray that's near Lebenzon's hand, put it in a computer to analyze it, and Lebenzon goes, "Well, crap, and dies." Talk about an ignominious end to this overly cocksure security officer. <laughs> like, he definitely got his comeuppance for uh, what he did in the previous novels because the Alpha Quadrant may fall thanks to what he did. And he knows it. Yep. He knows it right before he dies.
0: Yeah. I was a little surprised to see him at the end. I was like, oh, wow, Lebenzen's back. And okay. And then yeah, this happened, and it's like, oh, you jerk. I didn't like you to begin with, and now you've messed things up again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to be honest. Christopher Bennett was mean to his character. Like, I don't like the guy, but even I was like, damn. <laughs> no, but it played well. It was a good It scene. did. Yeah. The Oh, man. Just the... As he looks over and sees them putting it in the thing to be analyzed and he knows exactly the outcome of that, I was just like wow. Yeah. It's like, like well, you oh.
0: know, it's kind of keeping it with this character uh in the previous novels in the you know, where uh in before Dishonor where he you know, he's involved in that mutiny, but at the same time after that whole mutiny ends, I think he realizes, Oh, you know, well, maybe I wasn't right, you know, and now he does this and it's like, Oh, I messed that up. You know, he is so imperfect (laughs) in so many ways. And, you know, but then at the same time, the way this novel ends, it's, I wouldn't say quite, I mean, no, I will say it's a cliffhanger because, you know, yeah, now the Borg, the Borg have, uh, some more information and a new invasion's gonna begin and it just ends and I think, gosh, you know, what about somebody who just randomly was like, look, I've never read a Star Trek book and they saw this at the bookstore and like, I'm gonna read it. Hey, it's about the Borg, that's great. And then it ends and they're like, What happens next? What what goes on? What what you know? <laughs> Where what, what is it gonna be another book? Is there a movie? What happens?
1: Yeah. What's funny is I didn't remember that it ended this way. I knew this led into Destiny, but I didn't remember that the invasion started in this novel. Yeah, I mean, and by the end of the novel, like two named Star Trek planets that we've seen in other episodes, Akamar and I can't remember the other one, they're wiped out by the Borg. Like, I, I wow, I didn't remember it got started this quickly. Yeah, me either. I didn't remember that myself, but that's what's so great
0: about rereading these. And also because we've read ahead, (laughs) you can appreciate the books in a different manner too.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, one last little thing before we get to our final thoughts here that I wanted to talk about is, uh, and I'm going to tell people if you're someone who's been avoiding all details about the upcoming television show, Star Trek Picard. Uh, We talk a little bit about some of the things that have been revealed at like Comic-Con and, and in trailers and that sort of thing. So you might want to skip ahead uh, just, you know, a couple minutes or so if, if you don't want to know that. But one thing that we learned uh, from the San Diego Comic-Con is that Jonathan Del Arco reprises his role as Hugh in Star Trek Picard. So I d- didn't remember in this novel that Hugh sacrifices himself or seems to sacrifice himself in order to defeat the Borg here. So we know that we'll see Hugh and Picard. So either this book in particular can no longer jive with canon, with what comes later, or Hugh somehow survived. So I don't know. What do you think? Is this at all compatible? And I mean, we haven't seen Picard yet. We don't know what his role will be. But can you imagine a way that Hugh might have survived this to show up in Picard later?
0: Uh, I don't think this will be compatible with Star Trek Picard, but um, it's certainly possible Hugh could have survived this in some manner where he got transported off at the last minute into something for some reason, blah, 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 blah. And it's a whole long story. (laughs) You know, I mean, it Mm -hmm. certainly could be that way, but I don't think the writers of the Star Trek Picard series are going to look to this novel and try to explain that if it were to have happened. But, you know, there could be a book that does uh, tie in the two things, this book and that series together for Hugh.
1: The one thing that I thought of, And actually, this is just now. And I'm like, why didn't I think of this before when I was writing this in the notes? But we know that this cluster entity has, you know, plucked Teresa Chen out of the jaws of assimilation, uh, you know, as she was being assimilated and sent her somewhere and saved her. Now, it couldn't have done that in this one, because that multi vector agent still had to get into the collective somehow. But maybe it plucked Hugh away with a slipstream somehow. Yes, and
0: like then that. he was found naked at Rebecca's home on Earth. There you go. And
1: freaked her out. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's exactly what happened. Or Head continuity <laughs> is now official. Or that's what you know,
0: that's what starts up the Picard series where Picard's at his vineyard and all of a sudden there's a naked Hugh there and the action begins of Star Trek Picard, and that's why Seven and Nine comes in to throw some boar clothes on him and helps Picard out.
1: And there's like a two act. Section of Hugh explaining what happened. It's like, well, you know that cluster entity that you discovered in the year blah blah blah, in which it created those things that communicated with you, and you remember Teresa Chen. Well, how it did it did that to me too, and well, some backstory here. What was going on at the time was a Borg invasion, and blah blah blah. And Admiral Janeway. had... No, Hugh, probably Hugh. not. Shut up, <laughs> Hugh. Let them read the novel if they have to. <laughs> Hugh,
0: you remind me of Data. <laughs> You don't know when to shut up. Excellent.
1: Well, we've been doing a lot of imitations of Picard on this one. I was going to say, yeah. Um, One thing, though, is we on this show do know when to eventually shut up. So uh, how about we go with our final thoughts and a rating for greater than the sum?
0: Okay. So I have to admit, as I said earlier, I was like, oh, another Borg novel because we've been reading so many. But uh, as things went along, I liked the detail. There's a lot of detail in this, and I liked a lot of the character development, especially with our new characters. Uh, as a story, wasn't one of my favorites. I thought it was a bit slow, the story, but I just love getting detail about the Borg, about the characters, about the situation, about this entity. Just the details really gave me a lot to absorb. And really make the universe feel a little more rich and give it a lot of texture and realism to it. So I really enjoyed that. And it really feels in a lot of ways as a starting point for something else that's coming. Like it does feel like it could be the first book in a series. You know, even though it's more of like an introduction, I shouldn't say introduction, but almost like a prequel or something setting up for the destiny trilogy. And it really works well for that. So I will give this, I would say that I've been whisked away seven out of 10 times.
1: Nice. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed this novel. And I, I remember, I didn't remember a lot about it except for a few of the broad strokes Reading it this time around, I was reminded of why I like Christopher L. Bennett's writing, and a lot of it comes down to those in-depth explanations that he gives for various parts of the continuity. I think he and I kind of do a lot of the same things, where instead of poking holes in stuff and finding fault with things, we try and find the explanations for them that, you know, aren't necessarily spelled out on screen, but make sense, you know, if you kind of think, think them through and that sort of thing. So I really love that aspect of this novel and I'm hard pressed to find a lot of things that I don't like about this novel. I like the cluster entity. I like the strange new worlds aspect of it and the fact that it's a huge intelligence in and of itself. I love that it's so alien that, you know, communicating concepts is really difficult and kind of working through that issue I like Teresa Chen. She was a little annoying to begin with, but I like where her character grows and she kind of finds her little niche in the Enterprise crew. So, you know, reading through this, I have a hard time finding things that I'm not enjoying and not liking. So I think I'm going to have to give this, I'd say four out of five dropped hypo sprays that may spell the doom of the Alpha Quadrant. But it's a good rating, I swear. <laughs> doom! Maybe four and a half. Yeah, four and a half out of five, I'd say. This is, this is wow. right up there for me. it just me. went up a little. Wow. Yeah, it's... I, I, I have a hard time thinking of anything I didn't really like. I, maybe some parts did drag a little bit, you know, took a little while for things to get going, but when they get going, I'm really digging the action and stuff. Yeah. So this was up there for me. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. Well,
0: Dan, I have to say that I'm really looking forward to reading more books about the Borg after this. <laughs> Not really, <laughs> but no, actually, uh Yeah, so now coming up soon will be Destiny. And I don't, I mean, they're about Borg, but as you know, because you've read them before also, that it's not quite your typical Borg story. So I'm really, really looking forward to going back to these because I've only read them once.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like as we're coming into the Destiny trilogy, all of those like ads that were airing towards the end of Deep Space Nine are going through my head and it's like, and now it all comes down to this, you know, like, yeah. it's like, we've been building to this thing and I'm really excited to kind of get there now. Uh, it's more Borg. Yes. But yeah, I, I won't give anything away, but it's, it's, yeah, it's different for sure. Yes. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about Borg who are different today. But this isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM.
0: Previously on Trek.fm, Earl Gray. Okay, that's excellent. And it'll be interesting to see how we interpreted the topic because I know I may have interpreted it uh, maybe a little differently than others did. We'll see.
1: Is this another time travel thing?
0: No, I was I was gonna say no time travel for me, as long as Jellico doesn't come into this sure okay that's so we'll make okay. that deal then awesome. <laughs> I'm in. all right literary treks
1: and you know the the stakes are are really big you know we'll we'll get there but you know this board ship threatens earth and all this kind of stuff and it just feels like it, it's it's a lot of really comic booky over the top stuff doesn't quite fit right with the novel that came before it and the novel that came after it, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> Primitive Culture. A look at history and culture through Star Trek.
1: And next-gen arriving was was this sort of, whoa wow, this is, looks incredible.
0: I know when we look at sort of first season next gen now, what we're going is, wow, this is really slow and stagey. But in fact, it was it was incredible. It was absolutely um, game-changing. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast.
1: Only because I was watching little bits of Emissary recently is that he would see himself wearing that awful purple swimsuit and think, oh, God, I can't wear that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. every time I see it I'm like whoa I'm really glad I'm not wearing 24th century clothing <laughs> if you wanted me to murder an entire society fine <laughs> but I'm not wearing that bathing suit too revealing oh. that's why right, I draw the line <laughs> that's funny
0: and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm
1: So check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV. Or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Speaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, Spotify, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS
1: link. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit Patreon.com/TrekFM. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/TrekFM to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, a trip through a slipstream, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. Note: You can't actually get a trip through a slipstream. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm.
0: We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do just that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, on Facebook and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select literary treks and that will come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at Trek FM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm
1: another place you can find us is on our goodreads group at goodreads.com there we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books as well as a currently reading section so you know what's coming up in future shows there are also great conversations happening about all the books and comics in the star trek literary universe just go to goodreads.com search for literary treks and click join group and one of us will let you right in We'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Chemutala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not on the holodeck trying to show an alien life form how things are done, where can we find you? Well, when I'm not doing that, you
0: can find me on Twitter <laughs> at Admiral underscore Rex and you can find me doing Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala. And we're talking about Discovery the day after a premiere of a Discovery episode here on the network on Trek FM. And you can find me doing the Star Wars report, talking about The Mandalorian, The Rise of Skywalker, and all things Star Wars. And, of course, you can always find me in the Babel Conference. So, Dan, when you're not trying to avoid talking about procreation, where can people
1: find you? Uh, well, um. Yeah, I, I I think if you go to my Twitter account at Kurtrats, Kertrats, K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S, I, I think I avoid that subject. Uh, I'm really embarrassed if I don't. I'm so sorry. Uh, but you can also find me on YouTube.com slash Kertrats Productions, where I definitely don't talk about that sort of thing. I just talk about Star Trek. I've also got a website at Treklit.com, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new. And of course, you can find me in the Babel Conference as well. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and until next time... Live long. ...and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.